0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, give us hearts that are open to hear what you are speaking to us. Father, give us soft hearts, teachable hearts. Father, so that the word that you are speaking to us might go down deeply and richly into our hearts. And, Father, that it might transform and change us and the way we live in response to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I'll adjust this so that people see the top of my head online. Okay. I expect that we've all been there. Something terrible happens to someone with an unsavory reputation and we think it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Humanity wants to live, wants to believe in natural justice. Not the natural justice of the legal profession which just means that everyone gets a fair hearing, but that evil people get their just deserts and that the good guys Will prosper. This idea takes many forms. It's popular today to talk about karma, the Buddhist idea that the intentions that drive our actions have future consequences. That good intentions produce a harvest of good and evil intentions will only produce misery for the evil person. The Bible tells us that this common belief in a natural system of justice is part of God's general revelation. The knowledge of God and his character that we all possess because we're made in God's image. In spite of the fact that we often see terrible things happen to people we respect and look up to. And good things happening to those whose actions show them to have no regard for God, our inner sense, our picture of the world as it should be, there's a way that we in our hearts know it ought to be, is of a world where justice prevails, where wrongs are made right, where virtue is rewarded, and where those who mistreat others are rebuked and punished appropriately. It's this general general revelation that Paul is writing about in Romans 1 from verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And so it's easy to look at the circumstances of others, and even ourselves, and see them as a barometer that measures our standing with God. This nation is prosperous and powerful. Surely God must be blessing them. They must be particularly righteous and holy that God looks on them with such favor and delight. Or that nation is being ravaged by death and disease. People are dying in unprecedented numbers. Surely God is punishing them. What is the sin and depravity that has drawn God's wrath on them? What must they do to purge this evil and stay the punishing hand of God? Or it can be more personal. Perhaps we rarely see the richness of God's blessing poured out on someone. Perhaps we rarely see the richness of God's blessing poured out on someone and speculate that God is blessing them as a sign of his approval although at least one such example in recent history comes to mind, but there's no shortage of people who will come forward as one of Job's comforters to ask the question, what's the sin that led to your current suffering? Why are you sick? Why are the relationships in your family broken? Why have you lost your job or suffered a financial setback? Why haven't you been able to recover from that injury? Surely The fault lies with you. And worse, we ask the same question of ourselves and see our inner suffering, the things we rarely, if ever, talk about, the disappointments, the failed relationships, the miscarriage, the financial struggles, the thwarted ambitions, as evidence of God's punishment for something, either something nebulous or something specific in our past. If that's you, Jesus wants to speak into that situation in your heart today, as he did to the people who were in his hearing in today's passage. You'll recall that last week, James was explaining that judgment is coming and that we need to live our lives in the knowledge of that reality. Because if we lose that focus, we find ourselves, we'll find ourselves caught out when Jesus returns, when the tasks appointed to us by Jesus are undone, or worse, being found to be acting in direct contravi- contravention to our master's directions. And Jesus calls on the crowd to correctly interpret the signs of the coming judgment and ensure that they're reconciled to God Before they appear before him if you remember last week he said to the crowd when you see a cloud rising in the west immediately say it's going to rain and it does and when the south wind blows you say it's going to be hot and it is hypocrites you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky how is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time. It's against this context that the crowd then engages with Jesus to ask him to explain the headline story in the Jerusalem Herald that morning. It was a distressing story, a reminder of the brutal reality of living under the Roman occupation. Pilate's crack troops the counter-terrorism squad, had raided the temple, confronting a band, band of men from Galilee who were in the very act of offering their sacrifices and making a public spectacle of the terrorists as they suffered the fate of all who stood against the might of Rome as their blood mingled with that of the animals they just offered on the altar. Tell us, Jesus, why did this happen to these men? What does this sign of the times mean? Why has this judgment come on them in such a terrible and violent way? Remember, we just read, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. It's exposed by the beginning of his answer. Jesus answered, Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. The crowd thought that something so shocking, so terrible, to be put to death right at the altar while you were in the very act of offering your sacrifices must surely mean that God was exacting his wrath on these despicable people. What else could it mean? How else could such a terrible thing happen in the very presence of God? Just outside the curtain, that surrounds the Holy of Holies, right in the center of the house of God. We're right, aren't we, they ask. We've interpreted the signs correctly, haven't we? We aren't the hypocrites you've just called out. Tell us why this happened to them. Explain how God is showing his righteousness and holiness by making an example of them. Galileans you probably know them that's where you're from isn't it and Jesus pulls the rug out from under them you think they got what they deserve and you're rejoicing because it didn't happen to you you think that this means that you're on the right side of God's standard bad guys get what they deserve I'm still okay so I must be all right Not so fast, says Jesus. They're no worse than anyone else from Galilee. They're no worse than you. You too will perish unless you repent. You're completely misinterpreting the sign. The consequences of sin in this life, that we all suffer in different ways as a result of the fall, Are not signs of the degree of God's disapproval. They're warnings of what we all face the judgment when we will appear before the throne of God. And just in case they missed it and thought Jesus was really only talking about Galileans, he reminds them of the lead story in the news a few months back. Construction faults like the Opal Tower and Homebush or the new high-rise in Castle Hill have a long pedigree. And the headlines in Jerusalem had been full of finger-pointing and calls for inquiries just a few months earlier when the tower block of apartments adjacent to the city wall near the Pool of Siloam had collapsed. The rumours were that the construction of a new aqueduct to supply the water to the city was taking place near, near there and had triggered the chain of events. But who could doubt that God was sovereign and that it was he who had determined who would be in the vicinity when the tower block collapsed, crushing the 18 people who were buried in the rubble. Jesus goes on to say, of those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus brings it closer to home, to people they might have known rather than the strangers from Galilee. You know the victims of the Siloam tragedy, Jesus is saying. You know what they were like Or you've met people who knew them. You're looking at this the wrong way. You're thinking that God has made a distinction between people. That some have been especially wicked and warranted his judgment. But you've missed the point. You too are especially wicked and warrant God's judgment. The tower is teetering over you too. The sword is poised To strike you down. As it says in Romans 3.22. There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the uncomfortable truth. That the consequences of the fall that we see in a world where things are not as they were created to be where families are divided two against three and three against two, where disaster is never far away, where sickness and disappointment, cruelty and injustice pervade our experience, where work is hard and joy is fleeting, these are but a foretaste of what awaits everyone who is not reconciled to God, of what awaits everyone who ignores the clear warning from God that our time to seek mercy And to be prepared for the coming day of judgment is limited. And we need to repent. And to drive the point home and to sharpen it further, Jesus tells them a parable. Then he told this parable. A man had man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? We've got three characters in this story. The owner of the vineyard, the gardener who takes care of the vineyard, and the fig tree. And it's not hard to work out who the characters represent. The owner of the vineyard is God the Father. And you might be tempted to think that the vineyard is his creation, the world we live in. But the biblical imagery of a vineyard always refers to God's people, Israel. And the new Israel, the church. And the fig tree is me. But if you're listening to Jesus, the fig tree is you. God has planted us in the fertile soil of his garden. The aspect is ideally suited to us. The soil is deep, we are watered, sheltered from the frost, and sustained by the warmth of the sun. And year after year, the owner comes to look at his tree. To examine it and see how it's doing. The fig tree in this story is probably looking healthy, growing strongly with well-shaped branches covered with leaves soaking up the rays of the Sun and with its roots reaching deep into the soil to anchor it firmly and to draw in the water and nutrients from the soil. The casual observer might think it's a fine tree. But not the owner. He planted this tree with a purpose. He had plans for it. And year after year, he had come in hope that those purposes would be realized, that the tree would be fruitful, laden with delicious, tasty, pump ripe figs. And year after year, he'd been disappointed. The fruit he so desired was not there. The tree was barren. The very purpose for which it had been planted in this well-chosen spot in the vineyard was not being fulfilled. And so the words of judgment come, cut it down. This is not the tree for here. It's just taking up valuable space, using up the nutrients in the soil. I'll start again with another tree so that I can get the fruit that part of my vineyard should be producing. And so the gardener, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, gets his instructions. The axe is poised, and who can argue with the wisdom of the owner of the vineyard? His expectation of fruitfulness and his decision to remove this tree that fails to call up live up to its calling but listen to the reply of the gardener sir the man replied leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it if it bears fruit next year fine if not then cut it down Jesus isn't disputing the father's assessment Of the situation. The tree is fruitless. That spot in the vineyard is supposed to be producing an abundant crop of figs and it isn't. But Jesus proposes a slightly different course of action. Wait he says, not indefinitely, just for one more year and I'll get to work to see if this tree in which so much has been invested can produce the fruit required from this part of the vineyard. And what does that work look like? The gardener gets to work digging up the soil from around the tree, loosening it up so that the tree begins to shake when the winds blow. Perhaps some of its roots are cut or damaged as the pick and spade are put to work. And some of its roots are exposed and laid bare. And to the sweet-smelling soil in which the tree is growing, the gardener adds a rich load of manure, laden with a very different aroma, knowing that the sweetest fruit often grow in such soil. It's uncomfortable. It might feel as if the axe is being wielded and the application of the fertilizer might make you want to be anywhere but there. But the gardener's aim is to turn this unprofitable tree into a tree laden with fruit so that the tree might still stand when the day of judgment rolls around the following autumn. And so. We need a different perspective on the difficulties that God sends us in life. All around us, we should see in the brokenness and chaos of the fall the warning of coming judgment, the reminder that our time on earth is short and our need to be reconciled to God and to, re- and to, and to reflect that the deep work yearning of our hearts for a different world is itself a revelation from God that we're not made for this world but more than that if we listen to Jesus today we'll take a different view of the sadnesses griefs and cares that surround us if you're a tree planted in God's vineyard if you are a follower of Christ you need to know that Jesus, the gardener, will be constantly at work in the garden. The new Adam is constantly at work fulfilling the task assigned to the first Adam in Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Whatever your current fruit fruitfulness. The gardener will not be satisfied until you're perfected, until you become a mature tree, beautiful and graceful, laden with rich fruit, giving shade from the heat of the sun and shelter from the rain. And so he'll do everything that is necessary to bring about that transformation. He'll dig around you. He'll apply the fertiliser despite the smell. He'll prune and shape you. But if you are his, unpleasant as they may seem, they're not acts of judgment, but acts of mercy and grace. The work of him who, as it says in Jude, uh, is able to keep you from falling, And present you before his glorious presence without fault, with great joy. But if you are not already his today, your presence amongst you today places you squarely in the place of the tree in the parable. Planted in the vineyard, but in imminent danger of the verdict. That awful question from the owner of the vineyard, why should it use up the soil? Jesus' message to you today is equally clear. This state of affairs cannot continue indefinitely. The time is pressing, and you don't know how close we are to autumn. Now is the time to open your eyes and see what God is doing, what God has done. Now is the time to acknowledge that everything you have and are belongs to God and that you have not fulfilled the purpose and role for which you were created. God is ready in mercy to forgive and be reconciled through Christ to all who put their faith in the righteousness of God, who turn away from their disobedience and rebellion against God, who ask for forgiveness. And depending on the grace shown to them through Jesus, seek to live their lives for God's glory in faithful obedience to him. But don't delay. Autumn is approaching and it may be closer than you think. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the warnings that are all around us that the life that we live at the moment is short and that it is here that we need to be reconciled to you. Heavenly Father, we pray, Father, that any amongst us who don't know you yet, who have not been reconciled to you, Father, would hear that message and, Father, respond to it quickly. And, Father, for those who know know you, we pray, Father, that you would continue your work in us even when it is unpleasant. And, Father, when we wonder why these things are happening and how it is that they are for our good. Heavenly Father, keep at work in us keep your work, keep at your work of digging around our roots, of fertilising us, of pruning us so that we might become the people that you have created and designed us to be, that we might be made, Father, fully in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might be presented before him on that day Pure and blameless, spotless, perfect, the very image of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.